Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, the word is you killed him. Word is that you're an old woman. Word is you have turkey in sky. Word is, I don't know what word is. Somebody else tell you that. I didn't tell you Did that. Did you kill Shay? Hell no. Did you cut the human's ear off? Hell yes. Again, before you guys are misinformed, I haven't killed anyone. I didn't break the law, but the people didn't want to hear it. The judge knew it. He washed his hands. He said, I know it, but what can I do? People want this. Judge knows that's what all of You use the word maniacs on the outside. How are you different from the maniacs on the outside? Why do you call them maniacs? Because you know something, they think you are one. Yeah, it would reflect if you hold the negative up to the light, you don't see the light. What do the Beatles' White Album and the Manson family murders have in common? Well, everything, at least according to every book you'll ever read on the subject. It was allegedly the driving force behind the gruesome murders that took place only a short time after Manson became the leader of a wildly violent, obsessively loyal young cult. At first, the Manson family seemed like your average everyday run-of-the-mill commune family prevalent in the 1960s. They preached free love, traveled around in their little buses and relied heavily on the psychedelic LSD. Manson was the ultimate father figure for a group of runaways but they weren't quite what you might think. These were classic suburban kids and young adults who had lived relatively normal lives before Manson came sauntering in. While some were separated from their families, they were working their everyday average jobs, living their everyday normal lives. But Manson was the ultimate charismatic figure. He convinced the family that he was a Jesus-like figure that sold them on his beliefs. Society wasn't for them. It wasn't for any of them. They were better off on the outskirts following him and only him the one true Messiah. But as the LSD-induced Messiah's teachings droned on for hours, they began to take a darker turn. Soon, he became obsessed with the Beatles' hit song, Helter Skelter. He believed the Beatles themselves and the White Album in particular were signaling the end of the world by way of a race war. In his eyes, there was a war coming and black people would emerge victorious. The catch is that they would be relying on him and his family to build a brand new society. But when it didn't come the way he thought, he improvised. With a plan to start the war himself, he sent his family off to murder in cold blood and left clues behind that would lead people to believe it was the Black Panthers executing the murders. This is the story we have heard on repeat. The Helter Skelter, the race war, the family. But what lies behind Manson's wild eyes? How did a man become the leader of over 100 young people and convince some of them to commit multiple heinous crimes, including some of the most brutal murders in history without a second thought? Who was the Manson family and where are they now? Hello everyone, and welcome to a very spooky, very special Halloween edition of a new series that we're testing out, Dark Dives. I'm the Illuminati, and today we'll be digging into the story of the most infamous cult in modern US history, the Manson family. There would be no family without the self-proclaimed angel of doom himself, Charles Manson. 
For decades, he had been the overwhelming epitome of evil, the symbol of society's worst nightmares. But how did he become this? How did a short narcissistic man become the leader of the United States' most infamous cult? Well, it all starts back in 1934 when Manson was born in Ohio. From the beginning, his life seemed doomed for disaster. His mother, Kathleen Maddox, was absentee, and while Manson was growing up, he lived with her family. Everything was dark. He suffered years of abuse and neglect, and by the time he was only 13 years old, he was already committing his own crimes. Soon, he would find himself in a boys' school where his life just got worse and he became more violent. He spent a vast majority of his time planning an escape, and after six tries, he was finally successful, though not for long. See, he had a particular crime that seemed to be in his favorite, and it was stealing cars, so that's kind of how he was caught. But he once again was sent away, this time to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, DC. Finally, he was given some sort of explanation for his behavior. He was told he was aggressively antisocial. According to the psychologist, this came from an unfavorable family life, if it can be called family life at all. Another psychologist who examined him wrote, one is left with the feeling that behind all this lies an extremely sensitive boy who has not yet given up in terms of securing some kind of love and affection from the world. And maybe they were right. Maybe if Manson grew up in a different life, with a different family, in a different point in time, we wouldn't even have anything to talk about today. But as we all know, that's not what happened. And that's simply a fantasy of what might've been. But there was a brief moment where there seemed to be some light, a belief that maybe his life was turning around. After spending some time in the Ohio Federal Reformatory, he moved in with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. It seems like maybe this was the chance that he could have to live a normal, calm, quiet life. While people in the town seemed against him from the beginning, he caught the eyes of a railroad man named Cowboy Willis, who introduced Manson to his soon-to-be wife, Rosalie. And for a while, it seemed like life may have had some promise. Maybe, just maybe, the monster that would become Charles Manson could be avoided. He went to church with his grandmother every Sunday and even had a child. Unfortunately, everything would soon, once again, go wrong. As the bills began to pile up, he once again turned to crime, stealing cars. Soon, he would steal a car and drive to Los Angeles, where yet again, he would be caught and thrown back into prison. After spending a few years in the Terminal Island Penitentiary, his wife would divorce him. He would find himself in and out of prison for the rest of his life, constantly being released, only to break probation soon after. And this seemed to be the way of his life. After suffering years of abuse, neglect, and sexual assault while in the boys' school, Manson never successfully found himself back in the good graces of society. He spent virtually every second of his childhood, teenage years, and adult life in prison. In fact, in 1967, when he was released from prison in California, he asked the warden if he could stay, a request that I bet they wish they would have granted. But they didn't, and upon his release, Manson set out to build his own way of life, It was the 60s, a time of passion, music, and free love. There seemed to be no sign of social or public codes. Anyone could talk to anyone, and as the Smithsonian put it, runway hippies mingled freely with Hollywood royalty. So Manson went off to Los Angeles with the dream of one day starting a music career after he'd learned to play the guitar in prison. Unfortunately, one producer who had worked with him called him an unmitigated disaster. And so while the dreams of his music career quickly fell by the wayside, he had a backup plan. He had been carefully studying and learning about religion and picking up on techniques of effectively brainwashing people from the works of Scientology and the book written by salesman Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Through his time in prison, he had carefully followed some of the most successful men in terms of leadership, brainwashing, or amassing a following. 
And now that he was out, he learned how to put all of those techniques to use. Soon he would gain his first follower, Mary Brunner, who was only 23 at the time. Slowly, they started recruiting and his following would grow from one to over 100. This was a man that had been relentlessly bullied by suburban youth for his differences. He had suffered abuse from his family, friends, and adults for the majority of his life. Someone that was so institutionalized that he actually begged to stay in prison. Now he had a massive following. Children and young adults would leave their families and friends without a second thought for a promising life of adventure, change, and free love. And that's what Manson was promising them. The man who had been unceremoniously shut out of society his entire life was now the leader of a group. It was a recipe for disaster, but no one could predict how awful it got. Movie location, 20 miles from Los Angeles. They called themselves the family. They came and went, and the number varied from 20 to 30. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. Diane Lake was just a child when her family moved her from their quiet and peaceful home in Minnesota to California. They had dreams of becoming part of a new counterculture lifestyle and to make their way to a free love commune called Wavy Gravy's Hog Farm, which what a name. According to Diane, this soon became a life of severe isolation for her. She was told she was jailbait for the men coming to the commune and was told if she wanted to stay, she had to stay out of sight and sleep in the attic. Unwilling to endure the isolation and the feeling of being entirely unwelcomed by the community meant to spread love and acceptance to all, Diane began bouncing around, living with friends in other communes. At just 14 years old, she was introduced to Charles Manson. She recalls meeting him to be a magical experience. Eventually, she would come to be the youngest member of his family. For a short while, she quote, felt more love and belonging with Manson and the girls than anywhere else. At first, at least according to her, it was like a relatively normal commune. They spent their days listening to music, taking drugs and having sex. And yes, at 14 years old. But when the White Album came out, it all changed. Suddenly their commune became the headquarters used to prepare for the upcoming war. And Diane was no longer part of the inner circle. Her story is just one. She didn't join in on the gruesome murders, but she would become a well-known figure for her role in testifying against the family. By the time the murders were committed, she was only 16 years old, but she was one of the luckier ones. After a brief stint in the hospital for psychiatric evaluation and treatment, she was placed in high school and later found love and escaped to Europe to avoid being followed by the family. But what was really going on inside the Manson cult? How were so many people as young as 14 years old falling into the world of Charles Manson? And what did that world become? Manson had one goal with his new followers, to convince them they were special. Many of them were not unlike Diane, runaways who had traveled to California to experience the new wave of hippie culture and free love. Some were introduced to Manson by their boyfriends. Others met him by pure chance, like Patricia Krenwinkel, who was working as a secretary when she met the unlikely cult leader and quit her job the very next day. He promised them they would be accepted and welcomed them to a life that they dreamed of. They were no longer on the outskirts of society. They were becoming their own society. Through Manson's unlikely connections, they were granted the ability to live on large, glorious ranches, including one owned by the Beach Boys' Dennis Wilson. He had become friendly with Manson during his mediocre rise in the music world and was intrigued by the singer. Plus, there were the added bonus of having the women around. The Manson girls were trained, like they did all the chores, cleaned, cooked, and sexual favors for any male guest. But their stay didn't last long, considering Wilson had to spend over $100,000 to allow for these guests. When they were evicted, they made their way to the now infamous Spawn Ranch, where the cult only continued to grow and Manson's control just became stronger. 
he instructed his followers to take group-wide acid trips and they had mandatory orgies. According to followers, they were meant to rid them of society's convictions and the drugs, well, they did what drugs do. They broke down resistance. Soon he would become Jesus Christ in his followers' eyes, someone that could do no wrong and would never lead them astray. To them, he was the first person pushing them to do right, no matter how wrong the actions really were. Leslie Van Houten described her time at the ranch by saying, I became saturated in acid and had no sense of where those who were not part of the psychedelic reality came from. I had no perspective or sense that I was no longer in control of my mind. Now, obviously LSD does not make you commit the atrocious crimes his followers wound up committing, but LSD combined with hours long lectures, sexual control and brainwashing to the extent of believing someone was literally Jesus Christ can have lethal impacts. And in this case, it did. Manson would convince his family that they were the leaders of a war to come, a battle for society. And only with his help and by following his teachings would they not only survive, but prosper and thrive. This was all unraveling. And with the outside world cut off by the isolation of the ranch or the constant movement of the group, no one saw it coming. Now, please be advised that the following section will mention extreme violence and murder. If you're not in the right headspace for that at the moment, feel free to skip ahead. Dan over here, man, you took my money. I said, look, uh, gangster man, I, you know, I don't, you know, I ever, all you, all you white brothers are together. I'm coming up there, I'm gonna burn everybody up and take that ranch. I said, no, you're not, not around me, you're not. You talk that shit to them little girls. When you come to me, boy, you don't have to, you know, cause like, I'll take your hat home to you, dig? So we go through some changes and I told Tex, go down there and face that man. Don't drag your shit to my door, man. He said, I can't, he'll kill me. So he couldn't do it. So I had to go down there and I ended up shooting the guy. And I had to go through some other changes with some other people and cut some other people. While some people think that the murders of the Manson family started with the brutality of the Tate massacre, you'd actually be wrong. Before the horrors of that night, there were others that took place, others that started it all. Bernard Crow, otherwise known as Lotsapapa, found himself in the midst of the Manson family murder story after becoming acquainted with one of the most infamous family members of the group, Charles Tex Watson. As the story goes, Tex had been selling drugs while living with the family at Spawn Ranch and allegedly stole money from Crow, another drug dealer. Obviously, this didn't go over too well for him. So one day he unwisely called over to the ranch and allegedly threatened to kill everybody unless he was promptly paid back. With Manson and his family already in a drug-induced haze of believing the war was coming and violence was an acceptable part of their journey, this was probably not the best decision. But at this point, no one knew what the family was capable of, and how could they? Up until now, it just seemed like a cult of hippies living in a cabin, taking LSD, and participating in low-level crimes. No one predicted what they would become. However, this one situation would mark the beginning of the end the beginning of the string of terror. Not pleased with Crow threatening his family, Manson made his way over to Crow's apartment where he shot him. And Crow acted quickly. He played dead and waited as Manson left his apartment. After he begged his friend to call an ambulance, wound up in the hospital and pretended he had no idea who shot him, trying to stay hidden. Manson was convinced he was dead and soon became wildly paranoid. He was sure that Crow was a Black Panther, which he wasn't, and knew that they would come to retaliate, which they also didn't. So he did what he thought he had to, and he got his family convinced that they had to protect themselves from an upcoming attack. And so it all began. Manson told his family, now we gotta fend for ourselves because the Black Panthers are going to kill us. 
Soon, the family became intertwined with a motorcycle group called the Straight Satans. They invited them to live on the ranch as a form of protection and offered them the opportunity to sleep with Manson's girls, who, according to one of the bikers, had been taught that having babies and caring for men was their sole purpose in life. But soon it became clear that the bikers weren't going to help the family the way Manson had originally hoped. So they turned to the help of another man, Bobby Beausoleil. The new member of the family was a wannabe biker who was desperate to prove that he belonged. Now, this part of the story is a little tricky. Some claim Bobby went to meet a friend, Gary Hinman, who got drugs for the Satans, while others claim that Manson urged his followers to go rob Hinman. Either way, they appeared at Gary Hinman's house. There, after alleged two days of holding Hinman hostage, Bobby killed him. Desperate to cover up their crime and blame it on the Black Panthers, the members of the family swiftly wrote political piggy on the wall. And this was truly the beginning of the end. After Beausoleil was arrested for the murder, Manson began to panic. Quickly, he developed a plan to throw off the police, a plan that relied on a series of copycat killings, or what we know now as Helter Skelter. Less than a month after Beausoleil was arrested, Susan Atkins, Liza Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel and Charles Tex Watson, under the instruction of the man they saw as Jesus Christ, made their way to the home of the famous 26-year-old actress, Sharon Tate. They had only one mission in mind, to stage a horrific murder scene that distracts the police and places blame on the Black Panthers. And that's exactly what they did. That night in August, the family would commit one of the most atrocious and brutal mass murders in American history at the time, but I'm not gonna go into too much detail. By the end of the massacre, Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and four other people would be left dead at a crime scene that shocked the world and stumped the police. None of them had any connection to Manson, just chosen at random for the biggest shock value. Inside the house, the word pig was written on the walls with Tate's blood. The next day, the shock and horror of the killings hit the mainstream news cycle, only for another to follow the very same day. After several hours of driving around Los Angeles neighborhoods, the family members involved in the Tate killings, now including Les Van Houten, found their way into the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. They too were murdered and the word rise, death to pigs, and helter skelter, which was spelled wrong, it had an A in it, were written on the walls in blood. The sheer brutality of these murders, the fame of the victims, and the horrifying nature of the crime scenes placed only one day apart sent the greater Los Angeles area and the world into shock. Why was this happening? Who would be next? The police had no idea what to think. Over the next few months, they would follow lead after lead, hit dead end after dead end, and come up with nothing. At first, the police didn't even think the two murder scenes were connected. Instead, they believed the Tate murders were the result of a drug deal gone wrong, which given the brutality of it would have been hard to believe. And for the public, it was. People in the house were stabbed and shot repeatedly. There was stuff written in blood on the walls. That doesn't sound like your average drug deal gone wrong. It wasn't until the fall when they would catch their break after Manson and some of his family members were arrested for stealing a car. Of all things, it comes back to stealing a car. Finally, the investigation got its big break. Susan Atkins, proud of what she had done and wanting to share her glory, began telling cellmates about the murders. She gave details and names and even described her euphoria of obeying her Jesus Christ. After months of confusion, dead ends, and fear for the residents of the Los Angeles community, they finally had their suspects. The Manson family had been caught and now it was time for the true circus to begin. The trials of the century with the most infamous cult in history, 
were off to the races, and it was more bizarre than anyone could have ever imagined. It does not attract morbid sightseers. Instead, people who are curious about the Tate murders go to the Los Angeles Hall of Justice, where they wait in long lines for the chance to witness the trial of Charles Manson and the three girls accused of the five killings. Some people are so interested that they get to the courthouse at 4 a.m. When you saw Mr. Manson this morning, how did he look to you? <laughs> did he look good, healthy? Sure, he looks beautiful. He looks however you think he looks. How did you get here today? The Manson family trials had it all. A bombing, unhinged and insane outbursts, smiling murderers, protesters, and even someone that switched sides. The case itself cost the city of Los Angeles over half a million dollars, and the prosecutors were determined to find justice for the multiple slain people and their grieving families. As Manson walked through the doors during his first days, many were shocked. There was the man that they had heard so much about, who had convinced multiple people to carry out gruesome crimes, What would you expect to see? Maybe someone with a giant lingering presence, maybe some devil horns or bulging red eyes. Well, that's not what walked out. He was a five foot three man who appeared dazed by the hysteria surrounding him. Maybe he loved the attention, maybe he hated it. Either way, he certainly got plenty of it. He arrived with an X that he had carved into his forehead, which he declared was meant to resemble that he had X'd himself from our world. The girls weren't much different. The famous photo of the three walking down the hallways, smiling, handcuffed together, stunned the world. And their behavior during their trials wasn't much different. Manson's hold on them became readily apparent when they too arrived with X's on their foreheads one day. Then there was the one that turned witness, Linda Cassabian. She was only 21 years old and participated in the Tate murders only by being the lookout. After she fled the ranch with her child who had been kept separate from her the majority of the time. She was the dynamite witness the prosecution needed. She testified about the brainwashing, the life of the family members, and the fact that Manson, well, he had planned it all. Meanwhile, she walked through the halls facing death threats from her previous family members. You'll kill us all, they screamed at her. While she was on the stand, her once trusted Messiah looked her in the eyes, ran his fingers across his throat and told her she had already told three lies. It wouldn't be the last of his outbursts. It was just one of many. One of the most bizarre also came during her 18 day long testimony. Manson completely unprovoked stood up in the middle of the courtroom, turned to the jury and held up a copy of the LA Times that featured none other than Richard Nixon. Manson guilty, Nixon declared, read the headline. While it may seem random, this was a carefully planned attempt to cause a mistrial. The jury had to individually state under oath that the president's guilty verdict did not influence them, which it didn't. And so the circus trial continued. 22 weeks of testimony later, after the prosecution finally rested its case, the defense stunned literally everyone when they announced, without calling a single witness, that they were also resting. The Manson girls promptly leapt from their seats and announced that now, after previously refusing, they wanted to testify. A day later, Manson followed suit. While the girl's attorney refused to question their clients due to the belief that it would be likened to aiding and abetting a suicide, Manson got his moment to shine. His hour long testimony was rife with outlandish statements and multiple outbursts. But one of the most famous lines came when he said this, these children that come at you with knives, they are your children, you taught them, I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. Following his testimony, Manson's attorney tried one last Hail Mary pass blaming Tex Watson, but it wouldn't work in their favor. 
The trial was over and after nine months, the most expensive trial in American history at that time, the family were all sentenced to die. Their sentences would later be commuted to life sentences after California abolished the death penalty. The trial of the century was officially over. And though other members of the Manson family would continue on committing crimes, one even tried to assassinate President Gerald Ford, the infamous members involved with the LaBianca and Tate murders were now behind bars. So what's next? I set my cell and I do my number like a convict does his number but there's different colors on different people's backs doing different things. It's a different world. I love the world I live in too, just like Regan loves the world he lives in. You love the world you live in. <laughs> Most assuredly, it's me. You love all the pain that you've caused people, all oh. the anguish you've caused. Oh, I don't know pain. I don't know pain. I have no difference. Through all the trials, the bizarre no growth of the family and the murders, one thing remained the same. People believed that everyone involved was evil and beyond reform. But through the decades, it comes into question if that's totally true. Was the family evil? Were the girls seen laughing at their trial simply born to commit horrendous and jaw-dropping crimes? Or were they simply brainwashed by a master manipulator? As Manson spent the rest of his life in prison, nothing about him seemed to change. He was interviewed multiple times by journalists and FBI agents alike and portrayed the same wild narcissistic personality every time. John Douglas helped develop the behavioral science unit with the FBI. Do you know the show Mindhunter? Yeah, it's based on him. Your truth's complicated. Complicated how? Well, you don't see it, but the only truth is now. Now is the only thing that's real. Well, we're mainly interested in then, how you met, influenced, and indoctrinated the people who followed you. Indoctrinated, come on, man. Did you start with the girls? These people you call a family, they're just children that you didn't want. You threw him out like trash. He interviewed Manson after watching multiple reporters try. Every single one of them faced the same issue, he says. Manson dominated them. That's just who he was, what he did. He sat on tables, chairs, anything to make himself seem larger than the person he was talking to. He would rattle on about the dislike for society and him reflecting society back to everyone. But beyond everything, Manson was simply just incredibly charismatic. His sing-song demeanor and his ability to speak were intoxicating, and that's how he got people to follow him. Even in prison, after everything, Manson developed a long-term relationship with a woman that lasted right up until the day he died at age 83. But was Charles Manson ever reformed? No. He remained in trouble in prison throughout the years, causing issues between the staff, the other prisoners, whoever. Remember that ex? Well, it later became a swastika after he joined the Aryan Brotherhood, so. there was no reforming for him. As for the family, that's a whole other story. Susan Atkins, the same one that obsessively talked about her crimes in prison, exposing the family and laughing during her trial, allegedly became a model citizen while she was in prison. She was married twice, became a teacher to the others in prison and maintained a clean record. The scariest of the Manson girls became a staunch Christian and apologized for her role in the horrific murders. In 2005, the prison staff themselves advocated for her release. However, she was denied parole and after being diagnosed with brain cancer in 2008 and denied for compassionate release, she died in prison one year later. As for Patricia, she too later turned her life around after being sentenced to life. She and the other Manson girls repeatedly condemned Manson and begged people not to see him as a hero. Patricia now claims she suffered years of abuse at the hands of Manson and someone else who is still unknown and told reporters, what a coward that I found myself to be when I look at the situation. The thing I try to remember sometimes is that what I am today is not what I was at 19. 
And by all accounts, she does seem to be right. She is the longest serving female inmate in California. And she has spent years working for rehabilitative programs inside. Just recently, a parole board granted her petition for parole, though that decision is still under review. Her attorney, Keith Watley, told the media that she has become so transformed that she must be released, quote, even if we are horrified by what she did. So we'll have to see what happens there. Now recommended for parole after 46 years, Leslie Van Houten could possibly go free, sparking major reaction from family members of the victims, including Hollywood star Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah. Our exclusive the LaBianca family will never be able to have the ones that they love come home. But the reality is that I do have that. And I've worked very hard. And I ask that I be shown mercy I didn't give. And that's not easy to ask for in this room. Then we have Leslie, who was the youngest one involved in the murders. She has been to trial three times before she was convicted of murder and conspiracy and has since been disciplinary free the entire time. In 2002, she told the parole board, quote, I take very seriously, not just the murders, but what made me make myself available to someone like Manson. In 2019, she was granted parole by a board, but had her decision overturned by California's governor, Gavin Newsom, who said, while I commend Miss Van Houten for her efforts at rehabilitation and acknowledge her youth at the time of the crimes, I am concerned about her role in these killings and her potential for future violence. And lastly, there is Tex, which same story. Since being in prison, he has become an ordained minister, continually speaks out against Manson and hasn't had disciplinary actions. He shares his faith with the men inside and has even become a father to four children. So how is it that four of the most notorious killers in history have become seemingly completely different people inside? How is it that they went from writing in a victim's blood to ministers, rehabilitative program leaders, and model prisoners? Every single one of the Manson family members has apologized for the crimes and admitted their wrongdoing. Manson, on the other hand, never did. Was the Manson family truly a horrific group of evil people brought together under one leader? Or was this a case of a manipulative, charismatic leader convincing young, lost people to commit horrific actions? Is it possible that through all the research, studies, books, and documentaries about one of the most infamous groups of people in history that we may never know the truth? What really happened within the family to cause such destruction, such atrocity? It does remain one of the biggest questions in history and we'll likely never know the answer. But with all of that being said, that is where I'm going to end the very first episode of Dark Dives. I hope you learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you so much for sticking it out all the way to the end of today's episode. I know it was a bit of a more serious and tough one. So thank you so much. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye. You did that. Yeah. And you sent your friends back in to do the deed. Aren't you a oh, coward? My friends back in to do the terrible deed. Right. Doesn't that the make wicked you... deed. Turn around. Did we have the castle there with the vampires and the uh, Frankenstein? So I'm in the world all by myself. Yeah, yeah. On this one, you are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.